Welcome to Roll Call, a 126th Air Refueling Wing podcast of the Illinois Air National Guard at Scott Air Force Base. I'm your host, Technical Sergeant Brian Ellison. The Roll Call podcast focused on people, mission, and community. Hello to all of our deployers listening this week. Thanks for listening. We'll hear from the 126th Air Refueling Wing Commander, one more time, he'll explain why he joined the Air National Guard and uh, why he joined the 126th Air Refueling Wing as a crew chief. But before we really get started, I got to ask a question. Check your, your cargo pockets real fast, okay? Look at the back of the cargo pocket. Why do we have this third button on our cargo pockets, on our OCPs, right? Look at them. Check them out. It's right there. I realized it one day while I was uh, talking to my wife, probably about something very important, but uh, I interrupted her right in mid-sentence, like just with this bewildered look on my face. And she's like, what, what, what don't you understand what I'm saying? And I was like, well, I have this, uh, I have this third button on my cargo pockets on my uniform and, and I don't understand what it's there for. I've been, I've been meaning to bring this up on the podcast now for a while. So uh, maybe I should have asked the chief master sergeant of the Air Force, Joanne Bass, while she was here last Wednesday for a total force maintenance and logistics all call in the 126th maintenance group hangar, hey, why, uh, why, why do we have this third pocket, a uh, third button on our cargo pocket? But uh, instead, someone asked her, I think, even a more important question. She was asked about how the new PT program is going to look. So the fitness working group is supposed to spend some time with me sometime this month to share with me what some of the recommendations are. They huddled in December and and took a holistic look at what are some changes that we need to make and how do we get there. So I, I need to wait until they link up with me, but what I think they're going to provide us, or at least here's a little bit of direction that I gave them. What I told them is, In 2021, we should be able to figure out how to have different options when it comes to assessing PT. We should be able to figure out a way where we have different options on assessing cardio. We should be able to figure out a different way that it's not just the mile and a half. So that's one of the things that I think they're gonna look at. What are some different options on assessing strength training? This year, we will make some changes to the PT test. I hope that that team comes back to me with some options. The other option that I did tell them, while, and I'm not 39, but while I might be 39, I don't think I need to run as fast as a 30-year-old. So figure that piece out too. So I think they're gonna figure out some different time chunks. I think we'll look at functional stuff um, and then we'll see from there. Uh, I agree with her. At 47, I should not have to run as fast as a 40-year-old, or as a matter of fact, the commander, uh, Colonel Jackson. Hi, my name's Senior Airman Gregory Goder. I'm uh, part of the 126 Comptroller Flight, and uh, I'm a financial manager here. My day-to-day job um, would be, I'm an accounting technician, basically, so I'm in charge of all the squadron's uh, purchases make sure they uh, hit the books correctly. What I like most about being in the 126 is I'm an AGR out here, so I work out here full-time. Um, with that, I get a bunch of opportunities. Um, traveling is probably my favorite opportunity. Um, I've been to a bunch of cool places like um, Washington State, which was the first time I've ever been there. Um, I also play on the base softball team, um, so I get to travel with them quite a bit as well. I joined the Air National Guard because 
after college, I had a couple jobs I didn't really like, and I wanted to have an impactful career and make a difference on my community. I chose the 126 um, because I could pretty much stay around all my friends and family and still be part of their National Guard. I joined the Comptroller flight um, because my bachelor's in business management um, and it kind of just fell hand in hand with uh, working with finances. But one huge benefit I've been taking advantage of is uh, my full-time employment as an AGR. Um, as an AGR I get um, active duty pay, benefits, and everything that goes along with being active duty, but I get to stay home. Hi, we are the 126 recruiting team. I'm Master Sergeant Heather Wildey, recruiting flight chief. I'm Technical Sergeant Richard Olson, production recruiter. To learn more about career training with the 126, give us a call at 618-222-5701. But, but wait, there's, there's more. more. Give us a call in the next five minutes and you could qualify for four years of free college tuition. Joining us one last time on Roll Call is the 126th Air Refueling Wing Commander, Colonel Tom Jackson. Thanks again, sir, for uh, coming in and uh, talking to us. You've been in the wing now 32 years. What made you decide to join the Air National Guard? Well, I never grew up learning about uh, knowing what, even what the Air National Guard was or anything else. So I grew up on the western suburbs of Chicago. <clears throat> and... Uh, the airplanes that flew into O'Hare uh, on runway, uh, you know, nine right, nine left, flew right over my house. Uh, oh, okay. About about ten miles west, so they weren't super low, but they were low enough that you could see them. And every once in a while, I saw a dark gray airplane fly over. It was something hanging off the back of the airplane. And I always wondered what the heck it was. I had no idea. Um, but I also had a small airport uh, about two miles from my house that they did fly right over my house, super low and right on the pattern. So that that's what really kind of initiated my interest in flying. Um, and then when I was, uh, I think about eight years old, my older sister took me up in a small airplane with her boyfriend and he let me put the gear up and down and I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. I like this. I got to look out the window and, and see the world go by and I still do that today. So it's kind of <laughs> cool. But, uh, but no, I was in college, uh, at Lewis university up in Joliet, Illinois Okay. and, uh, Romeoville. And, uh, I was uh, running up there on the college team and, uh, it was expensive. I was at a scholarship, but it was still a very expensive school and, Oh, I thought the state paid for. I thought the state paid for your stay in Joliet. I wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> that was a different stay in Joliet. Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, no, I uh, um, wasn't in the guard yet. So I went to college without even knowing about the guard. I, I, was, I was kind of recruited on a running scholarship there, and it was a, a Catholic university, and it was expensive, and but it was it was close to home and um, close to my girlfriend. My now my now off my my wife now at the time. But anyway, um, my wife and I the summer of. Uh, 88, uh, went to Rockford for the Rockford Air Show. Okay. And uh, unbeknownst to me, there was a, you know, I didn't know what would be there. I just, hey, an air show. I liked airplanes. Let's go to the air show. And at the time, we lived out in northern Illinois, and Rockford wasn't too far away. And uh, we showed up. They had a KC-135 there, and the recruiters were doing their thing and had a little display out in front of, uh, hey, we pay your college tuition. And I was like, hey, uh, well, tell me more. And uh, so I, they asked me my story, and I told them that I wanted to fly airplanes, and, and uh, they're like, well, you know, we pay your college tuition and all this other stuff. I said, well, 
how do I how do I get to fly one of these? <laughs> and uh, and it's like, well, you know, you gotta have a degree first. I'm like, well, I'm more you got about a year in, so you know, like, well, you could sign up to be a crew chief, and and then after you get your degree, apply for a pilot slot. And I said, oh well, how do I do that? And then a few months later, I signed up, and January of '89, I swore in and went to uh, basic training in the summer of '89, uh, and was a crew chief for about three years, and then in '93 was selected for a pilot slot. And, but yeah, I was I initially joined the guard for uh, the college benefits and to fly airplanes, and had no idea that you know I'd stay there for right now 32 years. What's your degree in? Uh, aviation management. I went. Oh. To, I ended up transferring to SIU Carbondale, um, which we have a lot of uh, Salukis on the on our team here. Yeah. <laughs> um, matter of fact, a lot of our senior leaders are uh, Saluki uh, graduates. Colonel Babiak calls it the MIT of the Shawnee, but uh, uh, a very well-known aviation school. But, uh, um, but yeah, I got a degree in aviation management from there. And then uh, about, uh, what, eight years ago now, I got a degree from a, a, a Champaign, University of Illinois Champaign, for a master's degree. But What was that in? Uh, it was a recreation, sport, and tourism. It's kind of like an MBA for um, uh, recreational, like a sport business. So I, I based everything upon my bike business. And, oh, that's uh, cool. So it's like an MBA, but I was able to focus the, all the studies, all the education, all the, all the studies I had to do. I did, my, my bike shop was the, uh, the, the, the subject of that study. That's nice. Uh, you know what? I should take up the, your, uh, I should probably, should have probably gotten degrees that mean something <laughs> instead of political science and public policy. That really, they, they really go far. My, uh, my, my owner of the radio station I worked at when I got my degree in political science, he says, thanks for getting that. I know you're going to be here for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> um, what made you choose the 126th air refueling? My, you know why I have to ask these questions? Because my commander is making me ask everybody these questions. Uh, yes. Well, so, um, no, honestly, um, I'm from Illinois since I grew up in Illinois. And for me, I wanted to stay in Illinois and go to school in Illinois. And, and really, it was just... Uh, by meeting the unit there in Rockford that year um, and at getting just, that was my first exposure to even what the Air National Guard was. I had no idea. Uh, I have to be honest, I walked up to the airplane thinking, oh, wow, they brought a, an active duty airplane in here. So, um, but, but really it was just because it's in Illinois. I'm born and raised in Illinois and uh, I've always wanted to stay here and um, that, that's why. What made you want to move down to, uh, to, to, uh where are we at? Shiloh, Belleville, <laughs> Scott, so Scott Air Force, Air Force Base. Base. Thank yeah. you. Well, uh, as you know, Chicago Air Guard, I mean, it, you know, mm -hmm. we, the, the Air Guard was uh, founded up there in Chicago in 1927. Oh, really? Yeah. So we were at Midway Airfield. And then uh, when we moved from Air Midway, we moved to Orchard Park, which is now O'Hare. Oh, wow. Uh, and that's where ORD comes from, from Orchard Park. Oh, I thought it came from uh, Richard Daly. I thought it was named after Richard Daly. No, it's uh, Orchard Park. When it, was, it, used, it used to be Orchard Park Airfield way, way oh. back in the, in the teens and 20s. And I, I always heard that Richard Daly stuck his, stuck his name in there. Uh, okay, but, uh, anyways. So anyway, we, um, we were up there, and then you know, my first 10 years was there. And then in the uh, 1995 BRAC, they, um, you know, this is where Richard Daly comes in, uh, was uh, his effort to get back our land at the airfield. It was always been, he'd always wanted us out because they, they, that was air, airspace or land on the airfield that they wanted to use for commercial activities. Huh. And our military installation there was taking up that space. So in the BRAC of 1995, it was put in that the 
uh, Illinois Air National Guard at the 126 Airfielding Wing at O'Hare Airfield would be moved to uh, Rockford, Illinois, would, was the original legal kind of what came out in that original law. Right. Um, Congressman Costello from down here in uh, the local area got involved and added a phrase to that which changed the history that said, uh, or a suitable military alternate. Uh, and when that was added to the BRAC list, God uh, bless them. That that that's what drove uh, our move to Scott Air Force Base. They worked with everything here. Costello got our particular campus here. Um, at the time, there was no Mid America runway. It was uh, oh yeah, I remember that. This, this part of our uh, there was full of uh, there was a Cardinal Creek housing. There was a TLS and a couple other things over here. Well, when the other runway was built, uh, they couldn't have the housing. So they took all of our space. So the only building that was kind of original, if you will, is our main hangar. Uh, that was built in the 50s. Oh, okay. Everything else is brand new. It was built between 97 and, 90, uh, 97 and 2000. And, uh, and that's, that's what the move was. So uh, Chicago paid for a large portion of that. And then uh, obviously the federal government, a little bit of Sinclair County and some other stuff. But, sure. And that's what moved us down. So it wasn't so much that I wanted to move down, mm-hmm. but I was a full-time technician at the time. And... Uh, Airlines had not started hiring yet, and I was, you know, pretty happy as a technician. I was sure. uh, I really enjoyed the job and mm-hmm. uh, enjoyed the stability. And of course, after you know, several years of being a, a traditional guard bum in the city of Chicago, and it was a little bit challenging. So financially, I was doing well. Yeah, uh, my wife and I and the family and enjoyed it. So, uh, and we since we went to school in Southern Illinois, we we liked the area, and uh, we moved down and and loved it ever since. And so we, you know, so my wife and I family, we we've been living here. Ever since then? I got to ask a question. My son, talking about flying and all that. My son asked me, we were driving back from, uh, from Taekwondo last night. We live, I live right near, I live in St. Charles, but we're on the flight path for uh, Lambert. Okay. So we're, I don't know how high they are. They're not very high because we can read tail numbers or tails. Uh, I said, hey, look at that, Sam. He's uh, nine. And uh, I said, look at that. Isn't that cool? Because, you know, they start turning their landing, their lights on mm-hmm. and stuff like that right above our house into the in, and they're in their clouds and he goes well how do they know how to f- how do they know where they're going when they fly through clouds sir <laughs> i'll ask you that question uh we, we we just close our eyes and hope for the best <laughs> now um it's uh it's very similar uh, we've all seen a road map right where right. you see a road map of highways in the country and you want to go from st louis to la you, you you pick your route and you stay on that road right you or, or roads and that, that's the road map you fly um, well, same thing for pilots. We have uh, essentially roadmaps in the sky, and there are, they're, they're, they're flown on radio beams or between GPS coordinates, and you just a direct point from here to there, and, uh, and that's how we do it. So for our instrument approaches, when you're flying through the clouds into a, a runway, we have that, that roadmap includes not only the – it's a three-dimensional roadmap. It not only includes the direction of how to get from A to B, meaning the end, B is the end of the runway, but it also has to go from 5,000 feet to the ground level. So there's two ground, two, two roadmaps, both uh, glide path and route, and you stick on both of them. The instruments in the airplane tell you how to do that and stick help you there, and you just follow the roadmap. I mean, not, not to oversimplify a flying, sure. but that's essentially what pilots do is we just put the, you know, kind of keep the car on the, on the map and dr- drive, the, drive the path in. Oh, you make it sound pretty easy. Maybe... Uh uh, it's it, it's <laughs> it's not as difficult as some people think. It's uh, flying is is not difficult. It's it's the uh, it's it's the 
the systems and everything else. And as you get into larger airplanes, the system gets much, much more complex is being able to understand what the system's doing so that you can fly the airplane. Which remind you flew, you flew commercially for a while, right? I did. Yes. Okay. Um, I, I got to, you told me a funny story the other day and I got to ask, why do I have to ask you, why do pilots wear clip on ties? Well, not all do. Not uh, all. Okay, but uh, it's a smart thing to do. It sounds like one of the one of the um, uh, things I was taught in my uh, early on in my airline career was because uh, uh, you, you know you got to wear ties, being professional around the, the flying public. But when you get in the cockpit, you know we always kind of relax, loosen up a little bit. And uh, I had a pilot once who had a clip-on tie, and he just kind of unclipped it. And I was like, "What do you have a clip-on tie for, man? You know, thinking, hey, you know, you're, you're an adult, and you, you know, a tie a tie, right?" And, <laughs> He goes, well, actually, um, I wear that so that when I'm out in the flying public, uh, when someone grabs my tie because they're mad because their flight's last late, they're not going to choke me. The tie's just going to come off my shirt. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's pretty smart. I didn't think about that. So it, and the knot is always perfect. It's always there. It's easy to put on and off. And, you know, when you get in the cockpit, you just want to unclip rather than trying to snug it back up and make sure it's square and, and straight. Um, that was pretty smart. Let's get to the fun stuff. Not that we haven't been talking about fun stuff, but so uh, you're a triathlete. Uh, Sometimes. Are, are you? Is there? Are you mental? I mean, what is the deal with triathletes? I don't understand. Do you like pain? Uh, I think it. Um, well, I, I grew up as a runner, right? Uh, so I, I started my kind of athletic career as a runner. I did baseball and softball, all that kind of stuff when you're young. Sure. Now. But when I got into uh, middle school, running is what really kind of. Um, Everybody has something, right? Sure. Some, some people it's soccer, some people it's football, where it's just like it, they have a love for that particular event, chess, name it. Yeah. Uh, and, and running was it. For me, it was just in, in, uh, in sixth grade, I was they had running for gym class, and part of the, the finish of gym class was an 800-meter run, and you, you did it for time, and I ended up running against this kid who was really competitive and was winning everything, and I almost beat him. And oh, I was nice. like, wow, this is really fun, and that just kind of what – Gave me the bug. So I ran through high school and uh, did a little bit in college. and uh, Cross country? or Cross country and track, yep. Okay. Yep. And then uh, when I was down at Carbondale going to school, um, I, was, I was not running on the college team there because that's a Division One team, and I was not good enough for that, that's for sure. But um, there was, uh, I was still doing quite a bit of running, and I was actually having a lot of success, uh, probably my, the best year of running ever. And a friend of mine uh, said, hey, there's a, there's a small triathlon here. You should try that. And I go, what, what, what the heck is a triathlon? And it was called Doc Spackman, which I think is still going on there at, at Carbondale. Really? Yeah. And um, it was, a, I want to say, like a two or 300-meter swim across the lake and then a six- or seven-mile bike ride and a two-mile run around the lake. And oh, that's it. I mean, it sounds easy, but then you talk, that swimming gets me. Yeah. And, uh, so it was, and it's in April. Oh. So the water was a bit chilly this is before uh the wetsuits were as popular as they are now but but anyway i say yeah sure what the heck I'll, I'll give it a try and i had swum a little bit in grade school uh competitively but not not nothing crazy only one year never ridden a bike competitively at all um oh sure so i did the triathlon and got on the by the time i got to the run i was pretty tired but I, the run was my thing at the time so um ended up catching a whole bunch of people on the run i really enjoyed it Finished the race in second place behind a, a friend of mine who was at going to school and was a professional triathlete. And I thought, wow, this is this is kind of fun. Because you know, once again, you know, it's 
I did okay. And it was, it was you know, because in running circles down there, even though I was running well, I was always, I was never like one of the top finishers and right. I was enjoying it, but uh, there were some really good runners down there. But uh, the triathlon thing seemed to fit. It seemed to work and I really enjoyed it. And then I just kind of built on that. I did one other triathlon that year. It was in 1990. And then uh, 91 did four more triathlons. I won a couple of them. Which shorter triathlons? Yeah, on short Olympic distance. Yep, oh, okay. Yep, yep. Which are what? That's that's a five hundred uh, meters. Uh, no, it's a fifteen hundred meter swim. Fifteen hundred meter swim. And then a forty k bike, so a twenty four and a half mile yeah. bike ride, and then a ten k run. That's but, not too. bad. I mean, no. It, that sound. The the last two sound easy. The the swimming or the running and the, the biking and the running. Yeah. Swimming. I don't have. How hard was that? Was that your hardest? thing to learn about triathlons where the was the swimming no, part i was like i said i was a competitive swimmer for about a year um, <laughs> but that was <laughs> but i did that in eighth grade so that for me that was you know five years six years earlier so oh, okay um, I, 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 nice not i'm not saying i don't remember it but um i knew how to swim so for me right. I, I knew the stroke i knew the freestyle stroke and then that was actually my strongest stroke while i was swimming competitively so um but I never did it long enough where I became really, really good at swimming. So my swim was always, to me, it was always the swim. I was able to kind of stay in the mix, so to speak. I was kind of in the big group, if you will. I wasn't mm -hmm. left behind. I wasn't in the middle of the pack. I was a little better than that. The biking, I did a little bit better. Sure. So I'd catch a lot of people on the bike, but my run was by far and away the strongest. And because I was able to come off the bike and run so strongly when most people were the opposite where they would be, they'd be much, much slower. I got, I, and of course, mentally, psychologically, you know, when you're catching people on oh, the yeah. run yeah. quickly and you're just really getting past them quickly, it's mentally it really helps you. And uh, so I just built from there. And as I started doing more and more, and then uh, the Ironman thing was kind of a, it just just happened. I did not plan on doing it. I was working on, uh, in the summer of 92, I was working on, uh, I was going to go to the national championship, which is an Olympic distance race in Cleveland, and I was not doing anything long. I was doing a lot of short, fast, hard stuff, and right. which which is what you need for the Olympic distance. And That's that 1,500, mm -hmm. yeah. or whatever. Yep. So I went to 10K. the national championship in uh, August and uh, did, did pretty well there, finished in the top. I think it was the 90th or something like that mm -hmm. in the country. And um, uh, a couple weeks later, I uh, was out in California visiting my, my mom and dad. And uh, in Ventura County, Ventura, California, there was this uh, uh, half Ironman race called the Mike and Rob's Most Excellent Triathlon. It was kind of funny. <laughs> but uh, but I, I figured, what the heck, man, I'll sign up and I'll be out there and I'll just take my bike and, you know be a chance to do a I've never done a half so let's see how it goes and just have some fun and, and it would, this was in the days of like a paper you had to like print the application to get in the race and, oh sure and you actually had to check a box of whether or not you wanted to compete for an Ironman slot right and I was like oh, I don't know what that means but sure what the heck you know I, I, and uh, so I went out there and I did this half iron race uh, finished six overall wow won my age group um, and then was called up that, you know, congratulations, you won a slot to the to the Ironman. And I was like... Where at? I was like, cool. Which well, Ironman? Yeah, what, 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 what are you talking about? Well, at the time, there was really Hawaii and, like, a couple others. There, there was not, Oh, that was it? There oh. was very, very few others. And uh, and so, yeah, then six weeks later, I was on the start line in Kona, Hawaii. Holy... You raced for the military or you just raced in the military, uh, the military I did, categories? I did not get on the military team until uh, 2000... 
2005, 2007, and 2008. So those are the only times I was in that. So early on in my career, I was not on the military team. Number one, I didn't know they had one. Yeah. So I didn't um, either until now. Yeah, I didn't know until I got out there once. And it was was my fourth or fifth time out there, third, third time out there, that I heard about the military team. And then I actually got on the military team for the Olympic distance uh, here in the CONUS. So on the, in the, for the Air Force team. Right. And I did a couple of those races out in California. And then um, the Ironman team didn't come out until late. I mean, I didn't get involved in that until later. Uh, but uh, Yeah, we yeah. should explain how long an Ironman is. One mile, run, one mile swim. 2.4. Where did I get the mile yeah, from? Two, two, we we oh were talking gosh. about a mile swim before. But, yeah, 2.4 mile swim. Uh, 112-mile bike, and then a marathon, 26.2. That is nuts. <laughs> that's just pain. What, what, so you, you've got, so we have to also explain that to go to Hawaii is like the, it's the world championships. It is. Of yep. Ironman triathlon. So you have to qualify yes. throughout the season. Would you have to only qualify at one race yes. to get to Hawaii? You have yeah, to finish in a certain spot to get got to. It. At the, so at the time, because there were so few races out right. there, um, you could go to uh, any of the – they had um, they had a lot of uh, shorter distance races. As a matter of fact, they even had one sprint distance race in Bermuda that was an Ironman qualifier, believe it or not. Yeah, I, I don't know how that happened. But uh, Chicago, the Mrs. T's triathlon in Chicago, that was a, a, an Ironman qualifier <laughs> Mrs. T. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, and actually, I qualified once from that race. But uh, but not any. Anyway, Who is Mrs. T? By the way, uh, Mrs. T's is a pierogi company. Oh, okay. Yeah, they were they were the sponsor for oh, that, okay. that particular year's race. But anyway, um, but yeah, you have to qualify. So at the time, you had to finish so many like top in your age group typically. Mm-hmm. So for uh, when I when I did mine, I think I had to finish in the top six or something or top five for that particular race. And then other Ironmans I did as more and more became out there. Now you know it. The, all the sprint races went away that were qualifiers. The Olympic distance races went away. Makes sense. And then it eventually got to the point where um, to qualify for Hawaii, you had to do an Ironman somewhere in the world and win your age group. <gasps> Holy cow. So um, it got super competitive. Because um, so my first year uh, in Hawaii, I think there was 1,600 people in the start line. Um, and now there's 2,400. It looks nuts. Yeah, and there's multiple waves. You know, we had oh sure know, the first four times I did it, it was a mass start, and everyone started at the same time, including the pros. Uh, and now the the pro men start, then the pro women start a couple minutes later, and then 15 minutes later the amateur men start, and then the amateur. It, it's all right. but it's just to make sure everybody's spread out on the race course. Yeah, but uh, but yeah. So uh, my first time out to Hawaii was in '92, and my last time out there was in '08. You uh, you were regionally ranked, right? Or you are, or were? Or? I, I was when I was doing it at the time. Yeah. Is there anybody, uh, any like uh, famous Ironman that you looked up to, or maybe modeled yourself after? Yeah, Mark Allen was one of them. Uh, he was the kind of guy that uh, uh, very, very unassuming, very just, uh, he's very uh, amicable. He's a friendly guy. He'd be on interviews, you know, pre and post race, very friendly, very nice. He'd, he'd talk honestly about a lot of different things and really supportive even to all the athletes around him, no matter who he was racing, whether they beat him or he beat them. He was always, you know, oh, that guy's great. This guy's amazing. And, and he said that about people that, you know, weren't even in the same zip code. <laughs> um, but, uh, but when he came to race, um, he had this look on his face and they called him the grip uh, because he, 
in a in a especially in an Ironman, he he just had this thing that uh, you know people had this like fear of him, uh, not because he was mean or evil. He was just so hard to race against, and he was so strong, and uh, and he had a training ethic, and he had a a work ethic that was incredible, and he did an incredible amount of work. He was uh, very smart with the physiology and the science of it, and he brought a lot of things to the table, which made the whole sport better. So the, he was one of the guys that was really uh, kind of a formulated a lot of my ideas of what the Ironman was uh, early on. How did you um, how did you balance your military career and uh, basically I'm, I'm being, I don't want to call it being a pro. I don't know if you were, were you ever a pro Ironman. No, I was never a pro. But how did you ba- – I mean, just the, that, that training that goes into – because you got to swim at least once or twice a week, and, and then you got to go on long bike rides and all that stuff. How, how did you balance your military career and, and your interest in Ironmans? Uh, just the triathlon in general was a, a part-time job. So when I, I was training about 15 to 18 hours a week um, for triathlon, and you know, depending upon what I was doing. But when I was training for an Ironman specifically, I'd ramp that up to closer to 20 hours a week. Uh, in the last uh, six or eight weeks before the race. and How many Ironmans uh, would you do typically in a year? Typically no more than one. There were a couple Oh, t- really? Yeah, there was a couple times I did two a year, um, but uh, most of the time it was one per year or one every other year because they're hard. They're, yeah. It, it takes a lot of work to, to train for it. So, But in the interim, I was doing a lot of marathons. And uh, I did, f- I've done 45-ish marathons or something like that. So, so the marathon training was what really helped my bike, my running. Um, so the marathon was, was kind of, like, even before I got in the Ironman, the marathon for me was, uh, as a runner, was like the, the, the pinnacle of the sport for me. And where I really, uh, I felt, had a lot of personal success in, in being able to run good marathons and, and, and have fun with it and enjoy it. Met some great people. I ran the National Guard. I ran the Illinois team for 14 years. Oh, really? And uh, competed out at uh, Nebraska for the National Guard Marathon team, I think, 15, uh, 20 years I was out there doing that. But mm. th- those are the – that was really fun. But that's the you – know, when I was training just for shorter triathlons, that helped keep me fast and, and do this. And I started doing it for fun. But uh, as my career got – kind of more in depth here you know early on in my career I was my job was to fly right you know and then it was to instruct and then when I became a full-timer it was okay now you have a you know part-time job to fly full-time job to you know air crew scheduling or whatever I did full-time here in the the guard and the full-time job and then of course the life the family right right you get a bigger family you start doing more and you start training less and less and less and and then uh, it was probably in the last 10 or 15 years I really kind of tapered off significantly and but you do my favorite sport now, mostly cycling. Yes. Which I don't understand why anybody would want to do anything else. <laughs> uh, running, I, unless I'm being chased. Yeah. Unless, I don't even like, I mean, cyclocross looks cool to a certain extent, but I don't want to have to pick up my bike and run with it. <laughs> I mean, it does look cool to get muddy, but on the other hand, and then swimming, I, I've 10 feet and I'm tired. I'm like, what in the world is the, what is this? I'm going to drown. So I know you do a lot of cycling now. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the big things that you invited me on is the Gold Star Ride. What is that? What is that? What is that? And what does it, what's, what's, uh, what does it help? Or what, what's the, yeah, what charity or whatever does it support? Okay. So uh, a Gold Star family is uh, a family that has lost a loved one um, uh, in battle. 
and def- defending the country. So, uh, what uh, a few years ago, I have a couple friends in the uh, Illinois Army National Guard who started a uh, an organization called Gold Star Mission, and their their whole goal in this particular mission in the state of Illinois was to recognize the Illinois Guardsmen that have died in the fight against terrorism since 9-11. There's 34 of them. And uh, their goal was like, okay, how can we recognize them and, and keep their name alive? You know, this always remember, never forget. That is their, their motto. So they, they came up with this idea of a bike ride. Well, let's do a bike ride. And they thought of, okay, let, you know, is it a, let's do a century. Oh no, let's do 200. No, it's gotta be, it's gotta be big. It's gotta be something that's, so they said, let's go 500 miles. And the original thing was, we'll start, and we don't stop until we hit 500. Oh. Right? That was the original one. Then they, then they kind of thought a little more, and they go, oh, no, let's do it over a couple of days. And they, they kind of settled on four days, that they would, over a period of four days, they would ride to various points in, the, in, the, in, the, in Illinois. And uh, with the whole goal of recognizing all 34 of those soldiers and airmen. Um, so our first year, we rode from Cairo. Uh, in Southern Illinois, the southern tip of Illinois, wow. all the way to St. Charles, Illinois. <clears throat> and wow. we did over four days, averaged about 125 a day. I think our longest day that first year was 140, the first the one day. But um, And we'd, we'd stay overnight at uh, armories, um, National Guard armories. Oh, that's cool. And we'd stop at various VFWs and, and American legions and, and uh, firehouses and those kind of things where each place we would stop – We'd have some sort of recognition ceremony, or, and certainly in the evenings at the armories, we'd invite those Gold Star families in, and especially the ones of those particular service members that had, had passed away, um, brought their families in, recognized them and their children and them their families, and, and we raised money. So, and the whole goal was to raise money for this Gold Star Mission charity, and the charity would provide $1,000 scholarships for anyone, not just military members, anyone, and the only requirement is... You have to pick one of those 34 and write a story about it. You write, write a paper on what you learned about that person. Mm. So we're, we're keeping their name alive and keeping their, their history alive by people learning about it. So over the last several years, um, now we do it over five days, 100 miles a day. Gives Sounds us a much little, better. Gives us a little more time at each place, too, to do a few more things because, you know, you get a group of 35 people riding uh, at 15 miles an hour all day. It takes about 12 or 14 hours to get it all done. So we shorten the ride up just a bit, but still 500 miles over five days, and we still do the same goal, and we end up every year at the Gold Star Mother's Day ceremony. It's usually held in St. Charles, Illinois, or Springfield, Illinois. It rotates each year, and uh, we finish there, and part of the whole ceremony recognizing the Gold Star Mothers. And we've also expanded it to any service member that has passed away as, that's from Illinois uh, regardless of service since 9-11. So our, our numbers have dramatically increased of who we recognize and call their names out. And it's, it's one of the most moving, emotional, uh, uplifting type of things you could ever do. And it's, uh, the riding becomes the easiest part of the entire week because the camaraderie you have of all your fellow riders, uh, you're learning all of their stories. Some of these people actually served with the members that have passed. Oh, cool. Uh, some of them are family members. Uh, we now have people who were um, 17, 18 years old when they first rode with us, now have joined the Army National Guard and are oh, cool. in a unit of someone that they wrote about. 
uh, it, so it's it's kind of cool to to see it all come together. But uh, but yeah, the riding piece is something that's a lot of fun for me. And done some racing, of course, I had some competition in there for a while. But the, the, <laughs> the, but the Gold Star Mission is something that uh, really has a, a close place in my heart. I've done a lot of stuff with them from the beginning. Uh, when does that take place? It's usually the last week of September. Okay, because the last Sunday of September is Gold Star Mother's Day. Okay. And uh, we usually tie it up with, uh, we start on Monday and ride uh, mo- Monday through, actually we start on uh, um, Wednesday. So we typically all get together on Tuesday night somewhere and wherever we're going to start that year. Sure. And then we ride around the state and finish up wherever it's going to be. So hopefully this year, fingers crossed, we can do it in, in, uh, in the flesh for yes. real. Yeah. This year's, this year's ride, of course, was all virtual. Right. Uh, but we had, uh, we had more people ride this year than we've ever had. Um, vir- they, they did it virtually. Yeah. These virtual rides are great. Yeah. And, uh, but we had some folks who did their 500 miles in four days. Woo. And we have had some people like me who took all 30 to do it. But, uh, <laughs> But I started out strong. I started out with a 130 on day one and then uh, uh, finished up strong at the end of the year, end of the month. But it, it's a great ride. It's a great event. And uh, I got a few other cyclist friends I'm trying to, to get joined in with us because it's so much fun. Yeah, and it's great. It's, it sounds like it's a, there's a lot of support. Uh, it's supported. So pack your bags. You, you know, you've got cars that set up food for you and all that other stuff. It is, uh, <laughs> it is unbelievably supported. When, my first year doing it, I, was, I, I think I gained weight. Well, as I rode, <laughs> oh um, man, it was you had so much food to eat and you had so much uh, uh, fun and the riding. Like I said, the riding becomes secondary because you're talking the whole time and it's not a, a difficult pace and you're in a group, mm-hmm. uh, so you're constantly have some wind blocking you and you got vehicles in the front and back. You got Illinois State Police that is guarding the traffic. Oh I mean, it's, man, uh, it's incredible. That's yeah. a, that's as close as you're gonna. Most people, at least I'll get ever get to being pro. Oh yeah, exactly. Oh it it is pro level support. I mean, I've been on. I've been on cycling teams, and I have a cycling team with Bike Shop, and we, we can't provide the support for my cycling team like these guys do for Gold Star. What about 126th Air Refueling Wing team? Let's do it. All I, right. I, I, I say we get it. I, I know a few folks in the, in the group that ride, so let's get it. I've started a Strava, by the way. It's 126. Look for the if – you're, if you're on Strava and you're listening, I set it up a couple months ago. No one's found it. I even vi- invited the, the commander, and I don't know. He just ignores my Strava request, well, I guess. I, the, the commander's the kind of guy that only got on Strava because of the virtual ride this year. <laughs> I, I typically don't really care if people see my stuff, but uh, since I've gotten on Strava, Sir, I think it's pretty if it cool. Sir, if it doesn't happen on Strava, it doesn't it happen. Doesn't happen. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I don't know how mad I get. I, I did a ride here, and it, my Wahoo died on the way, and I was like, what? How am I going to prove I did this? It doesn't make any sense, but it's, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen on Strava. I want to thank Colonel Tom Jackson for uh, coming out, the 126th Air Refueling Commander. Sir, again, thanks for sitting down for so long. You bet, Brian. Appreciate it. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Always fun to talk cycling. I uh, have this tendency, I think, uh, to bore people with uh, cycling. I talk probably more cycling than they want me to talk about. Uh, I did that. Uh, I think I realized that last weekend or last week over at uh, maintenance, I was talking to uh, Master Sergeant Blankenship about cycling, and I, I think uh, he was just giving me the courtesy, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, okay, shut up now. Let's, uh, we need to talk about other things. But I wanted to talk about cycling. It's amazing, too, uh, how many of our leaders in Illinois were prior enlisted. I'm thinking of uh, Lieutenant Colonel Lane, Major Lubeck, uh, my boss, Captain, uh, Captain McDonald, and uh, the TAG, Major General Rich Neely. With your look around the Air Force, I'm Staff Sergeant Britt Crowley. 
Starting next month, some first-term overseas assignments for unaccompanied airmen and guardians will extend to 36 months. Lieutenant General Brian Kelly, Deputy Chief of Staff for Manpower, says during these moves, service members not only have to adjust to new jobs, but also to a new culture and country, which takes time. Kelly says with the longer tour length, units can better train and develop airmen, as well as instill a stronger sense of stability. The new policy does not apply to retrainees, cross-flows, and prior service who receive a commission. For accompanied service members, the overseas tour length will remain 36 or 48 months, depending on the tour type. New female body armor is being distributed to Air Force defenders worldwide, and some of the first recipients are praising the change. The new, lighter female armor features a curved chest plate, a shorter torso size, and an adjustable back that tightens. The gear comes in a variety of sizes, as opposed to a one-size-fits-all, allowing a better fit to provide the best coverage and protection. One female Security Forces Airman at Kirtland Air Force Base, New Mexico, says getting the better-fitting body armor is a historic moment for the Air Force, because it shows how much the military values females. The High Energy Laser Weapon System 2, also known as H-2, is a counter-unmanned aerial system-directed energy weapon. It's entering the final phase of testing for a new class of weapons with anti-drone capabilities. H-2 was developed as part of a directed energy experiment designed to deploy commercial systems to combatant commands for training, testing, and evaluation over a one-year period. The weapon system has already completed its first and second phases of testing that monitored performance, integration, and reliability. When the one-year period ends, the system could move forward into operations or be sent back for more testing. And that's your look around the Air Force. Miltax from Military One Source includes free, easy-to-use tax preparation and e-filing software designed for situations common to service members and their families. The suite of services include Miltax consultants who can answer your questions and advise you on military-specific tax requirements and deductions. Don't forget, you can find out... Uh, about us and find all our links to our webpage and Facebook at linktr.ee forward slash 126ARW. Check us out on Facebook. If you're uh, not watching this on Facebook and you're, you downloaded us on one of your favorite podcast apps, go to the uh, Facebook page and uh, look up our Ask an Airman because we just had drill. The Ask an Airman question is, uh, what do you like about yourself? That was a question that made me uh, very uncomfortable. I don't know about how uh, you feel about answering that question, but what do you feel, uh, what do you like about yourself? You can answer that question on our Facebook page. Don't forget, if you want to pass along some information, because you have information, you can email roll call at 126.arw.pa.mm.org at us.af.mil. Thanks for listening to Roll Call, a 126th Air Refueling Wing podcast. Focused on people, mission, and community, I'm Tech Sergeant Brian Ellison.